brand new listener then welcome aboard and if you're a regular listener then congratulations on making it through the horror that was episode five now all of you can rest assured that the standard of tunes for this episode is much higher than last time but arguably they are every bit as challenging as last time as you may have to make some equally tough choices when it comes to selecting your top three but hey that's just my opinion so my name is Mike Atkinson and I am joined as always by Nick Parkhouse. How do? And by DJ Trev. Hello there. Now, naturally, we are all chomping at the bit to get stuck into the new tunes. But before we do that, we do need to spend a few minutes conducting an autopsy on the twitching corpse of episode five and conducting an impact assessment on how it has affected the overall scores for each of our six decades. So... Have to admit, the voting numbers were slightly down this time around, and I cannot begin to imagine why, but we still had a respectable turnout and a very clear set of results. So here we go, in reverse order. In last place, earning minus one point for the 1990s, Them Girls, Them Girls by Zig and Zag. We have some listener comments. Theoretically, this is terrible. In reality, it also slaps. Don't want to give it any votes, though. And also, I rode the roller coaster of, oh, I forgot how much I love this song, to, oh, it was written by that guy, to, but it's a banger, to, oh, dear, yes, it's cultural appropriation. That phrase, cultural appropriation, cropped up several times in the listener comments. I will add that on uh, Trev's personal Facebook page, one of his mates, when he heard it was, Zig and Zag, them girls, them girls. He posted a SoundCloud link to a banging, <laughs> now what's that? I've, I've got to get the genre right. Speech tech slash ragatech. That's T-E-K, not T-E-C-H. It really was more ragatech. Apparently, I know this, there's a big fashion for speeding up songs at the moment because I read an article in The Guardian about it. So the banging speech tech, ragatech version of them girls, them girls, actually quite good. I mean, I could have voted for that. I genuinely there thought you were going to say, technically, this ought to be terrible. But in reality, it was also terrible. But you, you sadly didn't do that, which was a shame. Uh, I will send you the link to the speech tech version. I know how much you like that sort of thing. Let's move on to the meh zone. And in fifth place, earning nothing at all for the 1960s, it's that happy-go-lucky man-child nincompoop, Freddie Garrity, and his dreamers with I Understand. This is so firmly meh that almost nobody had anything to say about it, apart from one person who said, this isn't actively bad, it's just a big load of nothing. It's so meh that I don't think Freddie and the dreamers have got anything to say about it. <laughs> and in fourth place... From the 2000s, you can do it from Ice Cube and his various assorted friends. Uh, somebody said, great energy, a proper banger musically, but I just can't like the lyrical content. Somebody else said, not Cube's finest moment, but punchy and memorable. By the time this came out, I had long jettisoned any expectation that hip hop needed some kind of redeeming moral value. At this point, 
I have to issue a partial retraction on the cruel things I said about Ice Cube and his toxic masculinity in the last episode. DJ Trev recommended that I go away and listen to, I think it was his first solo album, The Predator. I did. I gave it a careful listen and I can now partially retract some of what I said. The Predator is a fine album. It's it's full of righteous fury. There's a lot less of that toxic masculinity which troubled me in his later years so yeah good steer thanks for that i thought the best comment about the ice cube track was the one that said uh this started out really good but kind of could have ended uh and it just went on for four minutes too long because he does the instrumental the hook and everything like that's great and then he's got not much else to say once once he's done his smut and we all enjoyed the smut we, we all had a titter. <laughs> Smut and titter. We've got two of our key words in already. Smut and titter. The trouble is, though, if he put his back into it and it had finished after 30 seconds, it would have given the wrong impression, wouldn't it? Is there much more satisfaction to be had from four and a half minutes than uh, 30 seconds? Do you know what I mean? Right, just own it. Go, sorry, short and sweet. That's your lot. Four minutes, you're just starting to get going, aren't you? And you're like, all right, here we are. Mandem has a reputation to protect. Oh, God, I hope I use that term correctly. In third place, earning one point for the 1980s, it's the Toy Dolls with Nelly the Elephant. This triggered various memories amongst our listeners. Somebody said, brings back memories of minibus trips to play football, yelling along. While someone else said, it induces horrific flashbacks to having to take part in singing this version for some kind of competition that's an appalling overpriced seat of learning. Uh, the comments on the uh, Toy Dolls, I feel, uh, vindicated my viewpoint on it. Uh, yeah, the idea, it does remind you of coach trips. It's a coach trip kind of nonsense song. And Mumble's comment about his kids loving it. Yeah, that's great. Kids don't come with their baggage. Music's subjective. Kids are innocent. They're a blank canvas and the kids love it. So, yeah, spot on. It was Centuries of Sound who said, this slaps, which is exactly how the term slap should be used. This slaps, man. It's absolutely throws it down. It is a banger. Yeah, Nelly's trunk can do that if you get in its way. I love the fact that Toy Doll's Nelly the Elephant is the musical equivalent of Princess Diana dying and that everybody can tell you exactly where they were when they heard it, which <laughs> is not the song I would have picked <laughs> to be that. But everybody seems to know exactly what they were doing. I do think when we've gone through these, because we, we have the Mezone every episode, and it's it's surely better to be the most disliked or, you know, third place than obviously it's better to be third place than the mezzone because art is meant to divide. And if you're just meh, then you're just meh. I mean, you know, notwithstanding cultural appropriation and the unpleasant involvement of the unpleasant man, you know, at least people have got an opinion about the zig and zag tune. People have got an opinion about the toy dolls. Well, I've already forgotten the other two that we were talking about. Well, more than any other track in this round of voting, the Toy Dolls really did divide opinion. Maybe as you'd expect from a mid-table placement, it had some other first-place votes along with yours, Trev, and it also had a fair share of last-place votes and pretty much every point in between. Now, our top two, nobody put either songs in our top two in last place at all. So... In second place, earning two points for the 1970s, Elvis Presley and my boy. Somebody said, too overblown in 1970s for my taste, but considerably better than what else is on offer. While someone else said, 
I recall a whole little section of early 70s American pop country devoted to maudlin relationship story ballads. When it was done right, Jolene, it was magnificent. This is not magnificent. I think it got the Elvis vote. I, that's all I can think for second place for it, it was because it was Elvis. And sadly, not as many people who are aware as Ice Cube, maybe, to give Ice Cube the benefit of the doubt because he's Ice Cube. Could be. We have a very clear winner this time round, earning more than double the points that Elvis Presley got. Every single person who voted put it in their top three. All but one put it in their top two. Most of it made it their number one. Of course, it's Blank Space from Taylor Swift, earning three much-needed points for the 2010s. Couple of comments. I'm firmly with the pro-Taylor consensus here, although, like a couple of you guys, I think she's at her very best with acoustic guitars rather than beats and synths. While somebody else said, I'm not a Swifty, but if I could just vote for this and give all the rest null point, I would. Let's feed those results into the master scoreboard and see how our decades are shaping up. So, thanks to everything that Taylor Swift has done for them, the 2010s rise from sixth place to fifth place. But unfortunately, it's equal fifth place, so technically they're still at the bottom. It's progress, though, of a sort. Sharing equal fifth place. Also with two points, dropping from fourth position last time. It's the 1990s. Now, two places above them and sharing equal third place with four points each. It's the 1970s who are going up and the 2000s who are going down. Now, staying put in second place with five points, we have the 1980s hanging on in there and staying put in first place, albeit with a reduced lead with eight points. Yeah, it's still the 1960s. So there's plenty of scope for those positions to wax and wane as the episodes progress. It is not yet a done deal by any stretch of the imagination. Let us move on to this episode's tunes. I have consulted the Magic Randomizer, which has given me a year suffix of six and a chart position of seven, meaning that we will be examining songs that were at number seven in the charts on the day of recording, 18th of January, in 1966, 1976, all the way through to 2016. Interestingly, this selection pairs three massively successful hit-making acts with long careers against three one-hit wonders. And also, unusually, out of all these acts, only half of one of them was actually born in the UK. It's the lowest showing we've had for the UK thus far. You can listen to these via a YouTube playlist and a Spotify playlist. Details are in the show notes for the episode. But if you're listening to this through Apple Podcasts, then you won't be able to click on the link. So I'm going to give you sort of a simplified version of those playlist links. To listen to the YouTube, go to tinyurl.com forward slash which decade six. That's number six. tinyurl.com forward slash which decade six. Or if you want to listen to the Spotify version, it's exactly the same address, but just bung an S for Spotify onto the end of it. Right, let us launch ourselves in with... The 60s! This is Let's Hang On by The Four Seasons. It was the third of seven top ten hits that The Four Seasons enjoyed between 1962 and 1976, and it peaked at number four. They only ever had one number one. That was December 63 
which went to number one in 1976. They've had 17 top 40 hits in all. The most recent was in 2007. It was a re-release of Begging. But by and large, their hit-making career divides into two distinct halves. They had no hits at all between February 67 and April 75. Let's Hang On has also been a top 40 hit for three other acts. There was Johnny Johnson and the Bandwagon in 1969. Then there was our old friend Darts in 1980. And just a year later, there was Barry Manilow as well. Nick, we're going to start with you this time. So one thing that I have learnt in the six, five and a bit episodes of this podcast we've done so far. So in the 80s, you used to get people like my parents complain that everything was a cover version and everything was a sample and there was nothing original anymore and all this sort of thing. And what I think we have learned over these episode so far is that that is as old as music itself you know we talked about the freddie and the dreamers song last time which i think was the fourth incarnation of that song at the time even in the early 60s daddy called by darts wasn't the original and something's gotten hold of my heart most people came to that through the later cover the same with this so my first hearing of the song let's hang on was the barry manilow version don't judge me here, but I did go through quite a Barry Manilow phase in the early 90s while I was at uni. I think there was a re-release, a remix of Copacabana made the charts at that time. And I got quite into Barry Manilow. There was a Greatest Hits compilation that had Let's Hang On on it. I mean, I still like a bit of Manilow now, but I got quite into Barry Manilow. So that's how I came to this song. Like you say, there was another version that didn't make the top 40 in 1990 by a band called Shooting Party, who deserve an honourable mention, a late 80s male vocal duo, a bit like Climby Fisher in many ways. <laughs> they were part of the PWL network. They were kind of the big Stock Kid and Walkman act that got away. They had an absolutely fantastic single called Safe in the Arms of Love, which you can find if you go online, which is 1990s, kind of late Stock Kid and Waterman, a really good pop record. And they did a version of this that missed the top 40 as well. But honourable mention, because we'll never get to mention Shooting Party ever again. It's a banger, isn't it? I do like a bit of Frankie Valley. I've seen Jersey Boys. And probably if you had to leave me one Frankie Valley song, I'd take December 63 or Greece. But this would be right up there. A very strong showing from the 60s this week, I would say. Trev, there's two ways for me to deal with Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, his name, before we even get into the music. For a start, they're the only artists we've had that have got a pizza named after them. So that's like good. But then like as a pedantic person like what I am, it really annoys me that they were only ever known as the Four Seasons or Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, like all the way up to 2003, when they were only ever a four piece. So it should have been frankie valley and the three other seasons like just mathematically they just really gets under my skin i think the song is is a great pop tune it's almost like a pop standard the tambourine and the trumpet are the most prominent uh, instruments in this and i can't work out who was playing the tambourine or who was playing the trumpet because it wasn't listed in the who done what section of where i was looking at for this but the version that i remember more is the shooting party version. When I saw this come up on the list, I was like, oh, I remember a really like classic 80s version of this. And as Nick said, it was actually 1990, but it's a very 80s pop sounding type track. 
And so I was like, I wonder if there's another 80s version then. I did some research, which is unlike me, and the highest that charted was 66. And I'm going, well, there's no way it can be that version that I'm remembering because I, I remember this like being everywhere. And so I went through, found all the cover versions, and then I was umming and ahhing about whether or not I buy this because I don't actually own it. And I was like, I'm sure I've got it. So I put it into my little hard drive search, and I've got the shooting party version. And the answers why I know that version so much. Uh, it was because it was on a DMC Master Mix DJ compilation. Now, this sounds like I'm going off on a weird tangent, but for me, this shows how important DJ promos were. So this tune got far more play than something that charted at number 66 in the charts. And I, just off the back of that, thought it was a hit. And it's, it was an absolute flop. So that's kind of the only way that I know this tune. The Frankie Valley version I've listened to, and it's as good. I can't really choose between the two. It's just a good pop standard. I bet of everyone who's listening to this, everybody will know at least one version of this. And that's as much as you can say about a song, isn't it? As far as being a great pop tune goes. Have you never been to Pizza Express and had a rack sue? <laughs> Capers, anchovies, DiMello, Parma ham, olive oil, I believe. You're a naughty boy. You mentioned the sort of grammatical error about it should really be Frankie Valley and the three seasons. This reminds me that actually on the label of the UK version of this 45, obviously someone, some pedantic soul at the UK record label thought about this. So it's actually billed as the four seasons featuring the sound sound is in double quotes, featuring the sound of Frankie Valley, which is a neat way of getting around that particular conundrum. That's a much better and far catchier title than Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, which just is nonsense and makes no sense. And it disgusts me. The Four Seasons, including Frankie Valley. <laughs> yeah, including yeah. Frankie Valley with the Four Seasons, uh, you know, as part of, but not and. Frankie Valley's Four Seasons. Frankie Valley's Four Season Experience. It's just too late, isn't it? It's just too late. Uh, like Nick, I first heard this as one of the uh, hit cover versions, but as I'm just a little bit older than Nick, my first exposure was via the 1980 hardcore post-punk version by Darts. Oh, all right. The 1980 carbon copy cover version by Darts, they really changed very little indeed. It is weird that Barry Manilow has an equally big hit with the same song less than 18 months later. But I guess maybe his demographic just wasn't in tune with the hardcore post-punk scene that Darts represented. Yeah, that must have been it. So... I didn't hear the original Four Seasons version until much later on, but I did end up buying it on 7-inch for DJing purposes just a few years ago. I was co-hosting a monthly Northern Soul and Motown vinyl session. And though they're, they're not exactly hardcore Northern Soul, but really neither was our crowd, there were a couple of Four Seasons tunes that were very popular with our dancers, The Night and Begging. So I thought, oh, let's try them on this one then. I bought it. And then actually when I played it out, I thought, mm, no, maybe it's just a little bit too pop. So like with my Northern Soul hat on, I ended up being a little bit sniffy about it at the time. But oh, how wrong I was. I'm doing a lot of recanting here. What I really like about this is its joyfulness. So Frankie Valley, he might be pleasing with his fiance not to break up with him, 
But rather than getting all maudlin and victimy about it, it's essentially reminding her of how great they are together and how much fun they have together. Now, this strikes me as a much better tactic than whining on about how he can't live if living is without you, which is the more standard tactic in pop songs. Curiously, I found a clip of the Four Seasons performing this on Top of the Pops in 1971. But all that happened in 1971 is it was re-released, yeah, but it was re-released as the B-side to a reissue of Ragdoll, and that didn't even chart. In fact, they didn't just perform this one. They ended that episode of Top of the Box by performing a medley of five of their other greatest hits that still didn't include Ragdoll, the singles they were on there to promote. It's bizarre. I do have a personal preference for their 1970s run of hits. There's this fantastic run of four total classics. The Night, Who Loves You, December 63, and especially Silver Star. But this is a fine record. It's beautifully put together. It's performed with skill. It's performed with joy. It is yet another strong contender for the 60s. When will they ever end? Would you like a quick rundown of other top 10 hits that contain the word hang? Oh, love to. The problem with this is I haven't included anything that includes the word change, which obviously also includes the word hang when you put it into a search. <laughs> I know, complicated, but you've got Hang On Sloopy, Hanging Tough by New Kids on the Block, Banger. Hang, hang On In There Baby, and Hanging On The Telephone. They are your Hang Top Ten Hits. And if you were to render it in its past form, that might take you to a song that we will be discussing later let's not hang on with the 60s let's move on to the 70s this is we do it by r and j stone it was the only hit for r and j stone and it peaked at number five they were a married couple russell stone from norwich in the uk and joanne stone from newark new jersey in the USA. They were both jobbing backing singers and session singers. They met in 1973 while they were touring with James Last. They married in 1974. They decided to make an album together. They got a record deal and Russell Stone wrote this song. Now, tragically, Joanne Stone died in 1979 and Russell Stone took many years to fully recover from his loss. He eventually entered rehab in 1992 before retraining as a psychotherapist, counsellor and a yoga teacher. And he has actually started putting out music again, but it's more kind of Indian influenced and ambient and meditative, a far cry from this. Trev, your turn. One of my main conceptual problems with the Austin Powers films is that a great deal of the imagery of the supposed 1960s character, Austin Powers, is actually very, very 70s, which is exactly what Steve Wright, the radio DJ, pointed out on Top of the Pops 2 when he introduced this song as being sung by Austin Powers and his assistant. If you watch the video and then the Top of the Pops performance, he looks like Austin Powers. It's kind of such a ridiculous look. It's difficult to get past that and sort of take it seriously, which, you know, you've, you've got to do because it's a serious piece of music. It's a bit schmaltzy for me, but then it's a love song. And the way in the video he sings, I mean, he's got a fantastic voice. Uh, and then she comes in and they look at each other. I mean, it really does look like love. It's a very nice love song. It's not the kind of music I've, particularly like but i don't think it's good you remember phil chill uh who was like a, I think a dj and a producer in the late 80s and early 90s and he did some sort of prototype 
big beat remixes of some 70s soul tracks. And around that time, Bomb the Bass did a sort of low tempo hip hop version of uh, Say a Little Prayer that was really good. I reckon if Jeff Young, the old radio one, the old, old radio one DJ, brought back his Friday night big beat show, the slightly big beat, slightly hip hop remix of this would fit right in with a completely imaginary scenario that I've just pictured. But I think this is a nice enough song. It, it's a bit sus steady away middle of the road but then sometimes it's nice to have steady away middle of the road love songs it's it's nice while i continue lapsing into my reverie of nostalgia about jeff young's friday night big beat show which i listen to and taped every single week i will hand over to nick so the first thing i would say about this song is that it's not to be confused with the global digital transformation company we do it which is what you get when you google to try and find it um (laughs) It's not them. I, I love that you say it looks like Austin Powers. That is absolutely hilarious. I watched the video today and I thought he really, I mean, the sideburns are incredible. It's one of those songs where I was thinking, oh, I like it. I like a bit of smooth, you know, it's smooth. I like a bit of smooth 70s smooth. And then I thought it does sound like all of those other smooth 70s songs. And from that point to this, I couldn't name you one of them. I've been absolutely racking my brains for what it sounds like. And I can't actually come up with anything at all uh, if you gave me enough time i would be able to say oh it sounds like what's that song if you could read my mind maybe a bit like that the, the one that i got was i'm still waiting which was i think donna summer diana ross diana ross yeah and because phil chill did a remix of that and whilst i was listening to it i was like oh if they'd have done what phil chill did to that diana i had to sort of leap around lily pads to get to it but i did get to it i don't think I knew this before I heard it, even though it sounds very familiar. At first, when I played it and it came on, oh, yeah, yeah, I recognise this. But I don't think I do recognise it. I think it is just a sound that sounds very familiar. I do actually like it. I think they work really well together. I think their voices complement. Their voices are very different. They're not quite what you expect to come out their mouth when you see them start. And I do like a little bit of... Late night, Richard Allenson's love songs. We're going back to 1975 now with uh, We Do It, sponsored by We Do IT, love songs on a Saturday night. It sounds like one of those. I really like it. Good. Right. I have quite a lot to say about this record. I probably have as much to say about this record as Trev did about Zig and Zag last time. So here goes the kettle on right when this was a hit i was at a boys boarding school in cambridge and yes i do regularly check my privilege and this single got a lot of plays on the gramophone in our junior common room it was bought by the boy with whom i had a secret romantic obsession and i like to imagine that he thought of me while listening to it i certainly thought of him while i was listening to it a lot was made at the time of the somewhat suggestive nature of the chorus and you can imagine the schoolboy sniggering at the line and we do it every night every day every possible way there was even and i remember this because i read it at the time there was even an outraged opinion piece in the daily mail about it which also cited two other hit singles of the day donna summer's love to love you baby with all that ecstatic moaning and the who's squeeze box which had a saucy double meaning relating to ladies' breasts. The tenor of the piece was essentially, must we fling this filth at our pop kids? 
which is a bit rich in retrospect, considering that the Sex Pistols were just around the corner. Indeed, another tabloid opinion piece about punk rock actually used the phrase, must we fling this filth at our pop kids as its headline. Now, this all strikes me as a bit unfair on R&J Stone, as I think they wrote We Do It as a sincere love song. If the chorus had gone and we're at it every night, every day, any possible way, then people might have had a point. But as it is, I think that the schoolboy sniggering and the confected moral outrage did rather cheapen the sentiment of what is actually a very lovely and touching piece of work. Now, you've been struggling to think of what it sounds like. I have a suggestion here. Russell Stone has gone on the record as saying that this song was inspired by the work of the songwriting duo Ashford and Simpson. They were another married couple. They later had a hit with Solid as a Rock. But uh, before 1976, they'd wrote, written quite a lot of successful love songs, such as Ain't No Mountain High Enough, You're All I Need to Get By, and Reach Out and Touch Somebody's Hand. They didn't write I'm Still Waiting because I just checked. But I think you can clearly hear their influence. And as someone who loves Ashford and Simpson, I think it's good influence to have. Also need to make mention of the fact that this is a multiracial duet. Uh, he's a white Englishman. She's a black American. I was really struggling to think of any other hit singles w- that were duets between people of a different racial backgrounds. I did come up with one, actually. John Lennon and Yoko Ono, Happy Christmas, War is Over. But I mean, it's still quite a groundbreaking thing to happen in its day. And I don't remember it ever being commented on. There were more enlightened times in some respects that maybe people give them credit for in retrospect. As it was the couple's only hit, and given the tragic loss of Joanne Stone just three years later, it does rather stand as a memorial to their love. And I think it kind of gives it extra poignancy listening to it with that knowledge, especially when you look at that video and you see the completely, genuinely sincere and non-manufactured look of love in their eyes. Just a quick mention about Joanne Stone's career as a session singer. She sang on a progressive rock album by my absolute all-time musical hero who never got anywhere near the top 40. This is my only chance I will ever get to shoehorn in a mention. But she sang on an album by Kevin Ayers in 1974 called The Confessions of Dr. Dream and Other Stories. She sang on two great tracks from that album, Didn't Feel Lonely Till I Thought of You and Day by Day. And yes, I will be adding them to the bonus tracks playlist. Then after this was recorded, she sang backgrounds on the the most extraordinary disco concept album. It was recorded by Alec R. Costandinos and the Syncophonic Orchestra, and it is a concept album based on Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. There's just one track on either side. It's episodic, it's complex, it's extraordinary. It was recorded in the UK, never released in the UK. I did actually buy an import copy. So, Joanne, I don't suppose she had that much say in the matter. I think she just took whatever gig was going. But she did end up recording on some fine stuff. And this is fine stuff too. I can give you the chart evolution of We Do It. So it starts with uh, R&J Stone, We Do It. And then the 90s, it evolves into This Is How We Do It by uh, Montel Jordan. And then in the 2000s, it evolves into Mystique's roll-on This Is How We Do It double A-side. Then it morphs into, oh, no, I've missed. I've missed You Know How We Do It by Ice Cube. Then This Is How We Do It. Roll on This Is How We Do It. Then How We Do It Around My Way by Lloyd and Ludacris. 
And then it goes back to The Party, This Is How We Do It, by Joe Stone and Montel Jordan in 2015. Quite a journey. Let's move on to... This is Girly Girly by Sophia George, who is our second one-hit wonder. Girly Girly had originally spent 11 weeks at number one in Jamaica, and after receiving a lot of radio support from John Peel, it became Sophia George's only UK hit, and it peaked at this position at number seven. She did, however, go on to have a few more hits in her home country of Jamaica. Girly Girly was also covered by Blondie in 2011. I'll put it on the bonus playlist but i can't honestly recommend it nick your thoughts please when i first saw this my initial reaction was i don't know this and then i thought about it for a minute and thought i absolutely do know this you're too girly girly did ring a bell so i'm not a huge fan of reggae particularly i mean you'd say this is fine as reggae goes I tried listening to her some of her other work the one about burning her belly I don't think it was that she'd eaten something particularly hot, as I, as far as I can tell. I know I'm a middle-aged white man, right? But can somebody explain to me some of the lyrics of Girly Girly? So this one in particular, one getty getty, one fretty fretty, him no drink, no other milk but Betty. Yeah, I wondered about that. Is it that he'll only drink milk from, oh, I was going to say from Betty the Cow? That was my original thought, but I thought, oh, hang on. This song's all about his multiple philandering. Maybe he'd only drink milk from his his Betty. It does. It's funny because the music stops that. It makes me think of Frank Spencer and Betty. Yeah, even reading it, I couldn't work out what it is about. Because at the end, she just reels off a massive list of countries. He's got one in Iran and one in Japan and one in Taiwan. And I, I can't actually understand what Too Girly Girly a flash about the world he is means right well i don't know what betty's milk has but i i believe i've got the general gist of what she's on about so i as with the huge majority of tunes uh this time around i didn't think i knew this one and then on the first listen i mean within seconds i did realize that i actually uh, knew it and by the second listen i was on board with this as a tune um it's got that 80s light reggae sort of sound to it the musical youth Althea and Donna almost a bit UP40 this track to use centuries of sounds vernacular slaps for me as it goes in the world of this uh, area of reggae like I do think it's reggae like I get more requests for Uptown Ranking than I do the entire back catalogue of Toots and the Maytals and I know like reggae people would be like, oh, like, you know, like, it's not proper reggae because the Althea Madonna tune is s- sneered at. I don't know whether or not this falls under the same category. I know the Althea Madonna track when it was recorded was kind of a joke and then just happened to get played by accident by John Peel and caught on. But yeah, John Peel was, I think, behind a lot of the popularity of this. Now, I, once again, for the second time this week, did some research going against everything that I stand for. But Lyrically, I was a bit concerned because of the reggae scene, which can be quite homophobic. I was concerned about what she meant by you two girly girly. It was written about someone whose, I believe, wife came home and found their son surrounded by girls. And it was saying, because I then thought it's like, oh, 
they mean you're hanging around with too many girls and that makes you effeminate. That's not what I think they were going for. It was, you're surrounded by too many women. It's basically saying you're a bit of a slapper. Watching the video, it was like you're slapping it around too much. You'll have to censor this next bit because I can't say it without the swear word. In the modern vernacular, Electric Callboy do a song. They would call somebody who did this too much a woof boy. You've forgotten our substitute word, haven't you? A love boy. A love boy. Yeah, a love boy. But that's not what the song's called. And that's not what the T-shirts <laughs> that the kids of the age are wearing. Like that is, They absolutely mean a woof boy. And I think that's what it's about. So for a bit, I was a bit, you know, hang on a minute. Are you just saying that he's got long hair? And, or, you know, were they essentially saying man up in a very sort of Piers Morgan way? That's not what it's about. I believe it's about... You've got too many women on the go out there, so you need to dial back on that. That's a different thing altogether. So, yeah, I think this is a a decent pop tune. I'm all about tunes that cross over to the mainstream from underground. I haven't got a clue what she's on about. I don't have a clue what Rihanna is on about in most of her music, and I think this is much better than an awful lot of Rihanna's music. So there we go. If you were going to have a woman in every port, so to speak, that the way they do it in Girly Girly is the way to do it, isn't it? is to have one in Iran, one in Japan, one in Taiwan, one in Scotland. You don't want two in the same town, do you? You just want one in every country. He's quite the networker, isn't he? It makes me wonder whether he was an air steward, but then, you know, did Air Jamaica ever have quite that many international destinations? The story I heard about the genesis of the song was because it was actually written by a man, Cal Surprise, and he was talking to his mum, and his mum was chiding him for seeing too many women and she said oh man you're too girly girly i have a feeling the phrase was actually of his mum's invention and he really liked that turn of phrase and he actually very quickly wrote the song based on the disc that his mum had just come out with so i've got a lot of memories of this one as well around the time that this was a hit my partner and i used to go out dancing regularly on saturday nights at the marcus garvey center in nottingham that was an afro-caribbean community center uh, they have a huge dance floor, and this Girly Girly was one of their biggest tunes, along with One Dance Won't Do by Orgy Hall, which was another crossover hit from the same time. And even though it was a few years old by then, one of the other big anthems was Cool and the Gang, Ooh La La La, Let's Go Dancing, Reggae Dancing, you see. So I have danced to it many times on a mainly black dance floor, and I would gladly dance to it again if only it hadn't been so forgotten. Indeed, it has become so forgotten that it didn't even make it into the book which Nick wrote called 101 Forgotten Poppets of the 1980s. The world is crying out for volume two. I'll help you curate it. I had been aware of this via John Peel on Radio 1, exactly the same way as I've been aware of Uptown Top Ranking via John Peel in 77. Yeah, he turned both of them into UK hits. And yeah, as Trev says, Uptown Top Ranking, a much-loved floor filler to this day, while Girly Girly languishes in undeserved obscurity. I absolutely love this record, always have, always will. I've continued to listen to it regularly over the years. Every bit as good as Uptown Top Ranking. It's also got that digital electronic sound that only became popular in Jamaican reggae a year or so earlier with the likes of Wayne Smith under Miss Lang Teng. And it sounds absolutely slamming. Yes, we've adopted this word into our vocabulary. So that's absolutely slamming to this day. No, I thought it was slaps. Oh, you're right. It slams, it slaps. It slaps, it slaps. All oh, right, slamming's mine. Slamming's my baby. <laughs> you can keep the slaps. <laughs> 
despite the lyrics having been written by a man, Sophia George totally sells them. On records, it's a light-hearted diss of a cheating boyfriend, which takes the accusations to ludicrous extremes during the fade-out when she crams in all those international locations into the closing bars. On top of the pops, where she was actually introduced by none other than John Peel, who could barely contain his delight and called it the best thing he'd ever seen on top of the pops. She did quite a light-hearted and cheerful performance, but if you look at the video, she does seem a good deal more downcast and pissed off. I love the way the video concludes with her phoning up all the other girly girlies that she could find from a call box. Obviously, just the girly girlies that lived in Jamaica, like the radio announcer or the go-go dancer. And to each one, she breaks the news of her man's infidelities. Then she like assembles them all outside his house, like a flash mob. And the video ends with him sort of coming out of his front gates and greeting the mass throng. And he's got one of those sort of expressions that remind me of the ends of screwball romantic comedies in the 50s and 60s. You know, he's holding his hands up. Ladies, ladies, there must have been some misunderstanding here. I can explain. Uh, it's a total classic. It needs to be revived. And I need to start playing it out to make that happen. It must have cost her a fortune to fly all of those girls over from Iran and Israel and logistically it's impressive though the fact that she's done that it's like she's gone the extra yard I just said she only phoned the ones that lived in Jamaica if you take all the girls mentioned in the song there were far more than that, that could have fitted outside Mr Loverman's front gates she only phoned the ones that lived in Jamaica she's only got so many pennies to put in the meter anyway she ain't gonna be making international calls from a from a Jamaican call box so going back to my original point, if he's got all of these women all over the place, why is he only drinking Betty's milk? Well, he does drink things other than milk. No, him no drink, no other milk but Betty. I'm quoting directly. Right, maybe if you think about, again, to go to the logistics of the entire situation, he's going to have to keep his stamina up with all these women. So maybe Betty's milk is a specific brand of Jamaican milk that has like high protein. I mean, the man's... He's got a job on with all these women, hasn't he? So he's going to need something. So it could be Betty has, you know, those fancy cows that are massaged with oil so that they produce the best meat and the best milk and stuff like that. What's that type of cow called? They live in the Himalayas. A yak. <laughs> Is yak milk particularly high energy? So Betty the yak, he only drinks Betty's yak milk. Maybe Betty had a float and she didn't only have milk. She had yogurt and double cream and cheese. Let's move on. Let's move on to the 90s. with Sure and One by One. This was the 12th of 15 top 10 hits that Sure had between 1965 and 2001, including four number ones. It peaked at number six. Of those 15 top 10s, 11 were solo efforts. Three were with her ex-husband, Sonny Bono. Sonny Bono, Sonny Bono, and one was with Chrissy Hind and Nana Cherry. It was written by Anthony Griffiths, who was a member of a Liverpool band called The Real People, and in 1987, it had been the band's debut single. In between times, Johnny Logan, the Eurovision legend, he did a cover version in 1989. That was a hit in Ireland, although nowhere else. This version of One by One was produced by an English producer called Stephen Lipson, now, Stephen Lipson, in the same year, he also produced an album for the Irish singer Brian Kennedy. One of the tracks on that album was called And So I Will Wait For You. Now, And So I Will Wait For You was co-written by, guess who? 
Simon Climby of Climby Fisher. We got two in this time round. Confusingly, two other versions of One by One were subsequently recorded and released and charted in their own particular spheres. So there was an R&B version, pretty much a re-recording. That was the lead single in the US, but it was only a very modest hit. But there was also a dance version that was mixed by Junior Vasquez, and that went top 10 on the Billboard dance chart. Trev. So I didn't think I knew this. Then I heard it and didn't know this. By the third time of listening through to it, I didn't know what was coming up. I couldn't remember it. I don't know that now I can remember how it goes. Just out of interest, by the way, how did you say the artist's name? Sure. Sure. I sort of say it in Silla Black's time. Yeah, Silla, I was thinking it's Silla Black's introducing it. Cher, uh, it sounds like Cher is still so, stuck in the sort of uh, soft rock, yacht rock sound that had kind of gone away by this point in time. Uh, and I've got no problem with the soft rock, yacht rock sound at all I, I really like a lot of those things but this makes me appreciate how much of a departure believe was by Cher when that sort of came out i mean i hated believe when it came out but i think it's aged well and it was compared to this quite a radical departure there's nothing particularly wrong with this but it's not radical i think this must have sounded dated when it came out i watched the video and that just does look like it's a couple going through a breakup watching share on a video and she's wearing all the soft rock cliches of fishnets and stuff like that it's a, a little bit meat loafy i mean it's all right but i think this will have been on some kind of top gear compilation like driving dad rock and like these days driving dad rock is stuff like Limp Biscuit and Linkin Park. And I, I think, you know, that's a lot cooler legacy to leave behind than this type of thing. There's so much in the world of Yacht Rock. And if you like Dad Rock, Soft Rock, that I really, really like, I just can't remember this now. And so it's not that I don't like it, but I, I certainly don't do like it. It has no edge to me. It, it's double denim. And double denim is currently like out of style. Like, yeah, I mean, in five years' time, it'll be back in for the 98th time again, and I'll be rocking it. But at the moment, it's a no, I'm afraid. While I lapse into a reverie about the erotic delights of double denim, I should pass over to you, Nick. So Cher was 50 at this point. What I don't really understand, Cher had quite a successful 90s, I think it would be fair to say. Just like Jesse James, love and understanding... Oh No, Not My Baby, The Shoop Shoop Song was the number one, Love Could Build a Bridge was the number one, Walking in Memphis, Strong Enough, and then Believe. You've got to remember that Believe is still the biggest selling song by a woman in UK chart history. Wow. It's absolute madness. And she was in her 50s. I don't understand who Cher's fan base in the 90s was. Was it gay men? I can't imagine that they would have propelled one by one into the top 10. As Trev says, it's not really a dance floor banger. To me, she sounds like the female Michael Bolton at this point. I mean, she does cover a Michael Bolton song as a single on her previous album. It's the dictionary definition of like, is it AOR or MOR or both? As Trev says, it's fine. As a lot of her records in the 90s were, they are fine. I don't know who was buying them, I don't know why she was quite as popular as she was. 
The only positive thing really I have to say about this is that the B side of this single is the magnificently titled I Wouldn't Treat a Dog the Way You Treated Me, which got me thinking about I'm nice to my dogs and I don't really understand that, you know, I treat my dogs quite well. Uh, Anyway, that got me slightly confused. So, yeah, we're a couple of years away from Believe, aren't we? Which, like you say, was a hell of a swerve from this. Yeah. So if we had been reviewing the US R&B version or indeed the Junior Vasquez dance version, I would have been a lot more positive about this song because I think both of those versions do work very well. The US R&B version has this lovely, sweet quality to it, really serves the song. However, as it is, we are stuck with the original UK version, which I find so dull that I struggle to say anything about it at all. But I'm going to try to say something about it. Yeah, it was the last big hit from Schur's soft rock phase. It's begun in 1987 with I Found Someone. Though it was the lead single from her new album, which was another soft rock album. It did okay in the UK. It got to number 10, but it didn't do very well internationally at all. So maybe it led Schur to conclude that the soft rock game was well and truly up. Why now, Cher? Why not five years earlier? when everyone else stopped doing it. I think she was stuck in a soft rock rut. I think she wasn't really down with the kids. She was yet to be really down with the gays as well. I have a theory about that. So she did pivot to dance music with her next album. The album was called Believe as well as the song. It did dramatically restore her fortunes. My theory is it was the club success of the Junior Vasquez mix of One by One. It was top 10 in the Billboard dance charts, which are very gay club friendly, always have been. I think that might have helped to nudge her in that dance direction. Oh, the gays love me. Oh, I can work with this. Right. We all have our genre prejudices. This kind of airbrushed drive time FM soft rock happens to be one of mine. It's actually very similar to the 1989 Johnny Logan version, but it's also not as good. And the Johnny Logan version isn't that great to start with. At the time, I was way too cool to even notice this appearing in the charts. I completely zoned out on this. I have come around to just a few examples of this sort of thing in recent years through DJing, really, and seeing the reaction of some of the FM drive time soft rock classics. This one still leaves me stone cold. The lyrics are so devoid of meaning that they barely rise above fridge magnet standard. In fact, an artificial intelligence chatbot could have done a better job. I know Nick Cave has been mithering about that. I think Sher would have welcomed an artificial intelligence chatbot at this stage in her career. Also, it's got one of those terrible, lumbering, juddering, one-note bass lines that just make my ears glaze over. Basically, every time I play it, I just find myself longing for it to end. Sorry, bring on the next diva. I think what's interesting, because we're, we're all talking about believe because it was i mean that was it was such a swerve for it as i say it's, it's made me appreciate believe even more it took me 10 12 years before i started going actually believe might be quite a good pop song but it's the artists who just started to peter out really and go nowhere and then have you know reinvented themselves through dance music to various degrees of success we might be talking about that with the next artist that's happened before hasn't it in the the bgs yeah, their career was kind of plateaued. And then Disco gave them another set of legs. The Four Seasons had the, very much the same thing. That's I think that was why there was the gap with the Four Seasons. They, didn't, they weren't going anywhere. And then suddenly they started having a bunch of disco hits. So, you know, it's one of those things. Yeah, you, you move to 
the dance scene, you know, possibly the gay scene, and it gives you an extra. Yeah, I mean, we, we still now talk about Cher, and you still go, oh, yeah, Cher, she's a household name. If she'd have disappeared after this, would you remember? You know, she wouldn't be remembered how she is now. So I think that's quite an interesting thing about the whole of pop music. Yeah, just go dance. I'm just thinking about this. In context, there was a bit of this around at this point. We were coming out of the meatloaf Brian Adams era, weren't we? It just feels about three years too late. Yeah. I used to work with a lot of people who lapped this sort of stuff up. You you said Michael Bolton earlier. I was thinking exactly the same thing. There was a continuing appetite for this sort of stuff. But I think it was an ageing demographic who had moved on from buying singles. Yeah. So, and you know, here we are in 1996. I can absolutely see how she got to believe because 1996, what were the big tunes? Gala, Freed from Desire, Gina G, that type of thing. And Cher's still doing this. I was just surprised that she hadn't moved earlier, really. Let's bring on the next diva. On to... Our next diva is Madonna with Hung Up. It was the 11th of 13 number ones for Madonna between 1985 and 2008. She has had 63 top 10 hits between 1984 and 2009. As I'm sure we all know, it samples Gimme Gimme Gimme, a number three hit for ABBA in 1979. It was only the second ABBA sample to be officially licensed for use by Benny and Bjorn. The first was the Fuji's Rumble in the Jumble, which used the name of the game. Nick, let's start with you. I have never been a very big Madonna fan, which for somebody who loves the 80s is a bit of an outlier. And I don't know what it is about her i could make a single cd of songs of hers that i like and that would be happy to listen to and not much more than that then there'd be a lot of cds of stuff that is fine but i don't really want to listen to it and then some stuff that i actively dislike this for me is madonna's last great song whatever it is 15 years ago i don't think she's done anything anywhere near as good as this in the interim and even then I would say it's only great because of the sample. It's the sample that makes it. The song itself is okay, but it would be nothing without the gimme, gimme, gimme sample in it. It's got Stuart Price co-wrote produced, which is always, you know, it's a tick in a positive box if you consider what he's done with the likes of, you know, Pet Shop Boys and what have you. So that's a tick in the plus column. The thing about Gimme, Gimme, Gimme is that, I mean, I absolutely love ABBA and I've loved ABBA for years. And it wasn't until I went to see the ABBA Voyage show in London that I fully understood Gimme, Gimme, Gimme. If you'd asked me to name my favourite songs of theirs, I'd have named other ones. Hearing that in context, in a place where you're up and dancing to it, it is an absolute banger. It slaps, if I might use the term of the moment. For me, I'd never really noticed that before. I'd heard it as a pop song and on a CD in the car on the radio or whatever. I'm not sure I'd ever heard it in a nightclub dancey environment before. I must have. And now, if you're going out, you know, you're getting ready to go out, you're going out, you're in a group of friends, you're putting some bangers on while you're in the pub or something. It's the first ABBA song you would go to. It's a sensational pop song. And so whether I like Madonna or not, and whether I like Hung Up or not, it's that thing where one of my absolutely all-time favourite records of all time is Valerie by Steve Winwood. 
And I love Eric Prids's Call on Me. I can't not love it because it's got so much of Valerie in it. It's impossible for me not to love it because it just sounds like a song that I love. And it's a bit the same with Hung Up. There's so much of the riff of Gimme, Gimme, Gimme in it that you can't not love it. So, yeah, not a great Madonna fan. This is a great song, but it's for me, it's the ABBA that does it. Okay, Trev. So this was really big in cheesy town centre pubs and clubs and bars and the type of uh, place that I was DJing back then and the type of place that I'm DJing back now. It is important to remember that it was big. It annoyed me at the time because the production on the track, it doesn't start with the beat. It starts just fading in in that as though you are walking into a club and making it quite a pain in the backside to play, which is weird because it is Stuart Price. I'm, I'm right in thinking Stuart Price, the Thin White Duke, was his coolest stuff, wasn't it? Correct. Mr. Brightside remix. Yeah, um, a really excellent producer. And, you know, you would just expect someone like that to make, you know, just stick a click to it so that it was easier to play. These days, stick it in a laptop. Anybody could mix it with their eyes shut because that's what laptops do. But back then, it was, it was quite difficult to get to. And I had to get to it a lot. It was asked for a great deal. And I think one of the things we are doing these days better than we did 15 years ago, one of the things that kids these days are doing better, is we will just play ABBA now. We won't bugger about with this. We'll just play ABBA. Gimme, 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 as has already been spoken about, is an absolute tune. And consequently, anything that's got such a huge, obvious sample in it puts itself up for comparison to the original, and it doesn't compare well. I actually think this tune could have stood on its own without the sample, because I think there's some good catchy vocal bits in it. Yeah, time goes by, so it's learning. That's quite nicely done. I would like to reimagine this. Take out the Gimme Gimme sample. Use any disco sample from the huge swathe of disco records that weren't absolutely massive i can't think why they've gone we'll use that sample because I, I think it's an all right pop record but the sample just kind of is too much for the record really now gimme 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 did disappear into the wilderness for quite a while maybe part of the reason that gimme 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 has come back so much is this song i actually think the majority of it's down to a boiler room set. Pretty sure it was a boiler room set. A DJ played it in the midst of a tech house set and the crowd went wild. However, that tune's come back for me. I just want to hear Gimme, Gimme, Gimme. A lot of remixes and bootlegs of tunes that have got that hook in. So you uh, with Mix Sweet Dreams, the instrumental has been used a million times for a million different things. All it makes me want to do is listen to you with Mixed Sweet Dreams. This just makes me want to listen to ABBA. While we're on the subject of Gimme, 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 I was DJing on New Year's Eve and I chose Gimme, 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 A Man After Midnight to be the song I played at three minutes to midnight. And um, there was this marvellous moment as the track started where I could just see people's expressions. Oh, I get why he's playing this. This is clever. And it all went off. Oh, it all went off. Now, as regards Hung Up, I remember vividly when this came out because I went out to our local gay club, NG1 in Nottingham, on the Saturday night, the first weekend after this single had dropped. And I can still picture in my mind's eye the reaction in the club when the DJ played it. The whole club just went off. It absolutely banged so hard in a club environment and if you talk about the full length version i think the club is still the best environment to hear it because it does have that very long breakdown 
which does dwindle down to almost nothing at all in the middle of the track. That gets lost on the radio. Yeah, there was a radio mix. No one ever plays that. It does also get a bit lost when you play it in a bar. Now, I'm a DJ in a bar. And last spring, after Ukraine won the Eurovision Song Contest, I was looking for ways to play the winning song. That was Stefania by the Kalush Orchestra without actually playing the winning song. If you see what I mean. Now, after a bit of experimentation, I discovered that uh, if you take the a cappella breakdown in the middle of Stefania and you loop it four times, you can sync it, admittedly sped up quite a lot, you can sync it right through the breakdown in the middle of Hung Up, which gets round the problem you have when playing Hung Up in a bar that it dwindles down to almost nothing and people just talking over the top of it. Now, Stefania blended with Hung Up. They really, really match together perfectly it's a bloody good job that no one had told madonna because you'd never hear the end of it would you anyway no one told her so i did it and then a couple of weekends later i did it again because a friend of mine was having her birthday party in nottingham at no less a venue than the ukrainian cultural center in nottingham so i did it again and it banged slapped and slammed even harder there as it had done in the bar Talking about the last great Madonna. Well, the single after this was called Sorry. That also went to number one. That's also fantastic. But the, I think the whole of the parent album, Confessions on a Dance Floor, is totally fantastic from beginning to the end. It's actually synced. It's beat mixed through. It's done as a DJ set. I used to buy every single thing that Madonna put out without fail. Confessions on a Dance Floor was the very last Madonna uh, artifact that I ever bought. I didn't much care for the next album. That was hard candy. I mean, it did fine sales-wise, but then she put out MDNA, that horrendous attempt to jump on the EDM and dubstep and Will I Am and David Guetta bandwagon. That MDNA, that marked the moment where Madonna's crown finally and irrevocably slipped. And what's happened since then? She's continued to release bad music. She's continued to generally tarnish her reputation in all sorts of ill-advised ways. The upshot of that for me, well, what I've noticed as a bar DJ is that even her one-time classics, a lot of them will start working on a dance floor because people go, oh, God, it's Madonna. There are some that still work. This hung up, definitely one of them. I've played it without doing the Eurovision loop and people do go crazy for it still. Borderline, La Isla Bonita, they still work. You see, Holiday, Vogue, they sort of work, but nowhere near the reaction they used to get. So she's just announced as of yesterday, as in the day before we record this, she's announced this um, upcoming Greatest Hits tour. And really, it's high time because every time Madonna does a tour, she always insists on playing the new album. And as the new albums have steadily got worse, it's become less of a draw. It really is about time she stopped desperately chasing trends, started realising she's better off as a heritage act. If she does that, she'll remind people of how great she used to be. And maybe I'll be able to fill dance floors with more of her music in years to come. Speaking of jumping on bandwagons, there is another version of this by Madonna with an artist whose name escapes me. Oh, God. It's the remix from last year, isn't it? Terrible. Yes. So it's in the style of the music of Raksu. It's got that sort of ding-ding-ding-ding with this girl lapping in it. And I actually prefer it. Uh, oh. <laughs> but because it doesn't have 
the sample. Like, Madonna looks weird in it. Uh, she looks like Yolandi Vassa out of The Antbird. She's got no eyebrows. She must be 300 now, so she looks fantastic for a 300-year-old. Everything about it's very confusing. And the fact that it does sound like it's in the style of Raksu is kind of about like it's. I'm not a massive fan of the version we're talking about. I don't think the other version is any worse, if I'm honest, though. It's uh, it's worth checking out just for a novelty, if nothing else. I'll stick the video on the bonus tracks playlist. It is total cringe. Thing is, Madonna, I think she's been trying to emulate Schur's timeless beauty. Shall we call it that? Thing is... She's significantly younger than Sher, but she's had so much work done in emulation of her heroine. She now looks exactly the same age as Sher. When you were saying your tunes, they aren't the ones that I would play by Madonna. I play Like a Virgin by Madonna, mm. Like a Prayer by Madonna, I think is an absolute monster of a tune. Mm. Um, I really do like music. I thought that was very nice. And I think I'm starting to come back around to Frozen as well. I think there's probably something there. Cher, believe is a whopper and then she's got other songs that i think are good but the only one that i would play is believe having done the top 10 hits with hang on should we do the top 10 hits with hung in now we're in the past tense oh that's well it's not very a very long list it's hung up by madonna and hungry like the wolf by duran duran which doesn't really count but it has got <laughs> hung in it dance all days by wang chong is all that springs to mind let's move on to <laughs> This is You Don't Owe Me by Grace featuring G-Eazy. It was the only hit for the Australian singer Grace Sewell. It peaked at number four here and it went to number one in her native Australia. She's released loads of singles since then, but none of them have charted, not even in her native Australia. At the time this came out, she was billed as just Grace, but in 2019, she became known as Say Grace, all one word, and the name change applied retrospectively. So if you're looking for her on streaming services now, she'll come up as Say Grace. It was co-produced by Quincy Jones, who also produced the original 1963 version of You Don't Own Me, recorded by Leslie Gore. This 2016 project, this was actually Quincy Jones's idea. He saw Grace perform at an industry showcase. He approached her about recording a new version of the track, and the new version was released uh, after Leslie Gore died in 2015. Fun fact, both singers were 17 at the time they recorded this song. Now, here in the UK, the new version ended up being used in Christmas TV ads for the House of Fraser, and that's what helped it into the charts. Interesting, the Leslie Gore original, as well known as it is, never charted in the UK, but it did reach number two in the US. Turning to the featured artist, the rapper on the track, g Easy. Well, he went on to have two hits as a lead artist. There was Me, Myself and I. That entered the top 100 the following week after this, peaked at 13. And then in 2018, he had a hit with Him and I. Now, Him and I was a duet with his partner at the time, none other than... Halsey, who you may remember from a previous episode. We talked about Halsey's Without Me. That was written about her breakup with g Easy. We are starting to form links between the episodes. Trev, your turn. So in the same way that because Madonna included that huge sample, I felt needed justification and didn't really get it. This has got a load of rap in it. And I found myself asking why. To be fair, his second 
bit of rap, his second load of bars, if you like, doesn't actually clunk that much. He's far better than the first bit, but the first bit is awful. And the video, he doesn't do himself any favours in that. He looks about as awkward as Tim Westwood always looks. <laughs> I mean, it's a great tune. And I just don't think it needs a bloke talking, you know, like less sense than I currently am. It's not going to make this tune street. You know, there are certain records that you go, all right, you know, you stick a rap in that and it's going to make it a little bit more sort of palatable for street. But this, there's no way this is going to, what was the thinking at the record label? They think that, you know, get some rent a rapper in on this and it's going to be suddenly pumping out of the windows of blacked out BMWs around the ends by the Mandem. It's just ridiculous. Honestly, I just think that happens far too much in modern pop music. Yeah, we've got this song. We quite like it. What should we do though? Sell some more. Just stick some rap on it. Mike said it's the second time G-Eazy's turned up and his philanthropy notwithstanding, I kind of hope it's the last time he turns up she does a nice performance on this they don't really change it from the leslie gore version but this was my gateway drug to the leslie gore version i heard it on the radio then the second time i heard it was on a on that tv advert and i was like oh that's really good but that rap was grating the hell out of me then sort of i, I went oh right, well i wonder if there's another version of this because i'd never heard the original and then i found out oh, wait a minute i will give that a listen and I just bought that. So I think that gives it a bit more backing because of that. I think it's one of those covers that don't really add much to it. But the original's very, very good. This would be, for me, a lot better if it didn't have Jeezy in it. What about you, Nick? Does the rap make the tune for you? I think I broadly agree with that. So the original, I could, I mean, I wasn't alive in 1963, but I can imagine it was quite a statement for a 17-year-old girl coming out going... I'm an independent woman, men go away, I can make my own decisions and all that sort of thing. So mid-2010s is a fine time to bring that sentiment back. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I agree with Trev, it's a great song. She delivers it well. There was a spate of slightly twee female cover versions of songs that had been in Christmas adverts at that time. We'd had Gabrielle Applin's Power of Love. We'd had Lily Allen's Somewhere Only We Know. There was a, a bit of a spate of those. So I could see why being in a Christmas ad in the mid-2010s did wonders for a few people's sales. The bit I don't really get with the rap is that the song is a fe- it's a female empowerment anthem. I can stand on my own two feet. I can make my decisions. I don't need a man. And then you get a man rapping on it about his opinion of the women he likes. He likes the women that smoke the weed and he doesn't like the basic bitches. And you're like, what? You've sort of undermined the whole point of the song in the first place by getting a, as Trev correctly calls it, renter rapper involved in that process. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. The only thing I would say about it is one of my favourite topics of conversation is rappers' real names, right? Because they're cool, aren't they, rappers? Rappers are <laughs> really cool, right? Jeezy's name is Gerald, right? <laughs> It's like Jar Rule. Jar Rule's name is Jeff Atkins, right? Which sounds to me like an accountant. You know, Tiny Temper is, is he Patrick? They've all got these incredibly like, mundane names. So if you're ever bored, I would just urge you to go online and just look up some rappers' names and just see what their actual names are. Because honestly, endless hours of fun. Gerald Easy. 
as I believe his mum calls him. And Ice-T, of course, is called Tracy. Yeah, and LL Cool J is just James, isn't he? He's just J- James. But yeah, I mean, great song. Original is fantastic. I listened to Say Grace's album 2016 today. It is the most generic thing you will ever hear in your life. It sounds like every other pop record released in the mid-2010s. It's There's nothing original about it whatsoever. So I'm not really surprised she didn't have much other success. I do think this track makes coherent sense, and I will attempt to explain why in a moment or two. Just coming back to the embarrassing g Easy by revealing his real name is Gerald. He does actually call himself Gerald in the very first line of the first rap section in this song. He goes, I'm Gerald and I can always have just what I want. So he is owning it, if you like. Not ashamed to be a Gerald. But he can't have just what he wants because he don't own her. We'll get on to that. Right. (laughs) For me, this is a difficult one to assess because I do think it's the strongest song that we've had in this episode. And I also think that bringing it to the notice of a new generation was a smart move on Quincy Jones's part. The message of the song is as strong now as it ever was back then. And I'm really pleased that teenage girls are getting inspired by it just as they had been in 1963. I think Grace does a perfectly serviceable job with the vocals. I think they compare well to Leslie Gore's somewhat nasal original version. The production, it's co-produced by Quincy Jones, so there are other touches in there, perhaps with the rap sections a bit more, but I think it's a nice deft blend of the classic and the contemporary. Then we come to G-Eazy, who is playing the role of a bad boy, which, if Halsey's Without Me is to be believed, probably wasn't that much of a stretch. Yeah, musically, I would prefer the track without G-Eazy's two rap sections. There is a G-Eazy free version out there, but I do think they kind of were in context with the rest of the track. So the first rap section, yeah, he's essentially whining about her refusal to submit to his control. Now that's brought to an abrupt end. His voice suddenly gets slowed down, like somebody stopping a record on a turntable, which is quite a clever way of signaling, like, shut up, it's my turn to say something. And then we go straight in to Grace's rebuttal. And then she takes over the bulk of the track and does the bulk of the song. Before she gets the final bit, we get the second rap section. g Easy comes back and you sense in the final section, he is beginning to come to some sort of understanding that our grace is not for taming. And that provides a neat cue for her to conclude the song by switching the lyrics slightly around from the earlier don't tell me what to do to I don't tell you what to do. I think it's a well-constructed juxtaposition of the bad boy and the independent woman. It does hint at an amicable conclusion. If, and it's a big if, g Easy can truly mend his ways. I think the video amplifies this. They're both in the recording studio, but they're separated by a pane of glass. g Easy's all up with his homies in the control box. Grace is down the road in the studio. And that kind of contributes to g Easy's isolation. It's like, shut up, you in the control box. That staging kind of puts him down as well. I think he was aware of that when he took the song on board, probably. So I can't pretend to love this version, but I can absolutely respect it. They must have paid him a lot of money, because as we established, Easy G doesn't come for free. (laughs) (laughs) He had an 
haven't really had any big chart action up until this point. I think it actually helped to launch him, arguably, in a way that it didn't work out for Grace herself. Shall we do some voting? Let's start with your votes, please, Trev. Right, so last time around, there was a lot of talk about, wow, this is a difficult week and blah, 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 right? I think this is much harder. I think musically last time was better, but I think it's easier to mark as well because it was highs and lows. It was a roller coaster. There weren't many songs where you kind of, I don't really feel either way in it. One word I've got written down here, underlined three times, beige. The tracks that I would put in my top three, I think, yeah, they're all right songs. But I think like the one that I've got as my worst, I don't think that's a massive slam to it because I don't think it's particularly bad. It's the most meh. And there are at least three meh songs this week. Uh, The best one for me, Sophia George. I do think it's catchy. It's the only one really that I'm finding myself sort of singing along without specifically thinking of the title. The second one, I do also find myself singing along when I think of the title, Four Seasons. Let's hang on. It's absolutely because of the 80s, uh, well, the 90s version, uh, it turns out. But yeah, great tune. And then third, and I'm I'm really glad I didn't do my research on this because I might have thought that I was putting this kind of almost like as a sympathy vote. I didn't realise that she died and I still absolutely thought it was a really lovely sentiment. I thought they looked genuinely loving the video. The song sounds like a love song and it sounds like it is meant and believable. So for third, I've got Aaron J stone and then the, um, the worst one uh, I have got. Yeah. And it's not bad. It's just, it's just, this is the noise of it. While Nick continues to deliberate, I will give my votes next because they are remarkably similar to Trev's votes. So this was really, really difficult because I was trying to shoehorn four songs into my top three and it was agonising to work out which one to exclude. But like Trev, my number one goes to Sophia George's Girly Girly. The revival starts here. I'm going to start playing this. As am I. All time, lifetime favourite. At number two, slight switch round from Trev. I put RJ Stone as my number two. I had memories of this being a lot more schlocky and syrupy than it actually strikes me listening to it now. And the first time I played it recently was before I did the research and found out what happened to Joanne. And even on that first playing, I thought, Oh, God, this is so much my kind of thing. It's really classy. I think it's almost Ashford and Simpson standard. And so flipping it around slightly with Trev, my third place is the Four Seasons. I've been on a journey with this. When I first saw its name came up, I thought, oh, it's that rather sort of anemic poppy thing that's not as good as the ones that Northern Soul crowds like. Uh, Yeah, I was wrong. It's, It's a fantastic pop record. Just doesn't quite move me on the same level as the other two. That's the only reason it's third. I had to squeeze Madonna out. I have overplayed that one in the last year or so. I, it's it's worn thin for me, which is why it just drops into the meh zone. Grace and G-Easy also in the meh zone, although, as I say, I think it's okay. Uh, a very clear last place for sure for me. It is the only one that I got really restless and couldn't wait for it to be over. And on a few of my repeat plays, I just had to cut it off before the end. I really did. Okay, Nick, let's see whether your opinions diverge significantly from the emerging consensus. Well, 
it's it's a really difficult one because had it been Barry Manilow's Let's Hang On and had it been Abba's Gimme 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 and had it been You Don't Own Me Without the Rap, it would have been a totally different result. But because of all those three things, and we got to treat the song specifically as it is and the version that was a hit, incredibly unexpectedly, I'm going to go for the 1970s as my favourite. I've been absolutely sold. The more I listen to that, the more I like it. I've added it to a playlist that I listen to regularly. I just think you're right. It is class. The story's great. I just, yeah, we're going to stick with that. Second place, we'll go. We'll go for the Four Seasons, 1960s. It's it's a pop tune. Third place, almost exclusively for the sample. It's Madonna from the 2000s, and in last place, it's going to be the 2010s. And you've G easy to blame for that because without the rap, it would have been something else. It's such a great song and I so don't need the rap on it. When I arrived today, it was going to be Madonna. Straight in. Absolutely. What a banger. And I've been totally convinced by it's just a sample and it's not that great. I have some results. In last position with minus two points, that is sure for the 1990s. Fifth position, minus one point, Grace and G Easy for the 2010s. Fourth position, into positive numbers at last, one point, Madonna. So the three most recent tunes are all in the lower half of the scoreboard. Jumping right up to third position with five points. It is the Four Seasons from the 1960s. One point ahead with six points. Joint leaders right now, RJ Stone from the 70s, Sophia George from the 80s, both have six points. Very difficult to predict how the votes are going to turn out amongst our listeners. I am confident we'll get a few more this time. I think there's a bit of more of an incentive to vote. This is how you can vote. You can go onto Twitter. Yes, it's still here. Go onto Twitter at which decade tops. You can drop us an email, whichdecadeistops at gmail.com. You can drop us a message or leave a comment on our Facebook page. Just search for Which Decade Is Tops for Pops. It is compulsory to specify your first, second and third favourites in descending order of preference, plus your most bad and hated no-tied positions. Any additional comments, very welcome. Please supply them. They may get read out. Slightly shorter time to vote this time because we're recording our next episode. It's one day early. So your new voting deadline, 6pm UK time, Tuesday, the 31st of January. We're about to close down now and then we're going to go offline and I'm going to tell these two what the tunes for episode seven are going to be. But in the meantime, it is a goodbye from me, goodbye from Trev, Ta-ra. goodbye from Nick, Tassy Bye bye. Which decade is Tops for Pops?